back to the rewind i'm josh and this is a podcast where i watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends today's episode is about both last night in soho and the harder they fall and i'm happy to be joined by elijah howard for this one elijah what's up hey thanks for having me back it's been a little while yeah and daniel lima daniel how's it going pleasure to be here for this you know obvious double bill yeah, very obvious, at least of things that like we know pique your interest in uh, Elijah's as well, because Elijah, uh, I know he'd been waiting for Last Night in Soho for a while. Uh, so Last Night in Soho is the newest movie from Edgar Wright. He directed it and co-wrote it with uh, Christy Carnes Wilson. It tells the story of Eloise Turner, who's played by Thomas and McKenzie. She is a woman that lives in rural England and uh, loves fashion and likes to likes to look back on the or not look back on. She wasn't around, but uh, likes to romanticize the uh, 60s in London and dreams of becoming a fashion designer in the city. And she gets into the uh, she gets into the London College of Fashion and decides to go off to the big city, though it's implied that her mom once upon a time did a similar thing and things did not go so well. And uh, as we see, Eloise is raised by her grandma. Uh, she gets to the city, has a lot of trouble fitting in with some new classmates who um you know, they're nice kids. They, they're just a little misguided. Uh, no, they're terrible. Um, and they, 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 they drive her out of the dorms and she goes and uh, rents, a, rents a room at the top of an old house from an old lady uh, named Miss Collins in the Soho neighborhood of London. Soon after moving in, she has a vivid dream in which she is uh, transported back to the 1960s. And she goes into a, a, an old cafe where she observes a a uh, young blonde woman named Sandy, played by Anya Taylor-Joy, uh, who's inquiring at the club about becoming a singer. Uh, in doing so, she uh, strikes up a relationship with an entertainment manager, Jack, played by Matt Smith. What seems like what might become the start of a promising young career that really inspires uh, Ellie's clothing designs and um, in her own personal fashion in the present day, uh, turn into something darker as uh, Ellie's keeps being transported back in her dreams and sees that uh, Sandy all of a sudden hits upon a rougher time. Jack doesn't treat her well. She doesn't advance like she wants to. Uh, Jack begins to pimp her out. And uh, it just, it, and, and then in turn, it seems like Ellie seems to have a psychotic break of sorts. And this movie that had been something that was like uh, very, very fun turns into something uh, somewhat creepy, terrifying, uh, maybe, maybe not terrifying. Um, I, we'll talk about how scary it actually is, but uh, certain, certainly different from anything we'd ever seen from Edgar Wright. And I guess that's where I wanted to kind of want to start. Elijah, I, I think, God, it had to have been close to early in the pandemic when I, I feel like I have a memory of when we were early in the pandemic and we thought we were going to be out of this thing in a couple of years and, or excuse me, a couple of months. Uh, it is a couple of years. Uh, we thought we'd be out of it in a couple of months. And uh, we thought, oh, that, that last night in Soho is still going to be a, a November or an October 2020 release. And you said, hey, I want to do a podcast about that movie. And that was about a year and a half ago. But, you know, here we are now. So you're obviously uh, very excited about it way back then. Uh, I know you're, you're probably a fan of uh, Edgar Wright's various movies to a certain extent. But uh, when that movie got released uh, or when that when this movie got announced, uh, you're, you are you were obviously on high alert and pretty excited about it. So I'm wondering, before we even really get into the, what this movie is about and how much it worked for what it was, I want to know from you as someone that I, I'm sure is a close observer of Edgar Wright's work, uh, knowing what you know about the kind of movies he had previously made, what was your initial reaction when you heard he's going to make some kind of horror movie set in London in the 60s? 
And uh, why did that excite you? To be honest, it really had nothing to do with the overall concept. I mean, it's it's Edgar Wright making a horror movie, which he has he's done three of before this one, and or two and a half. We, we can talk about that later, but you know, it's he's it, a tried and true uh, genre for him, and I was you know pretty content with him to be doing work in it again, regardless of of what it ended up being, but. Um, it was actually really the cast because they, they announced the cast pretty early on. And, you know, when it was announced that it was Thomas and McKenzie and more specifically Anya Taylor-Joy, who I've, I've been a fan of for many, many years. I was pretty on board regardless of, you know, the later kind of revelation that this was going to be Edgar Wright's attempt at, you know, kind of like a giallo or like a, you know, 1960s mod psych thriller kind of thing. Like sort of predated that revelation i will say yeah no i i i got you yeah no and i mean he gets he deserves some kudos on the cast i guess we could talk a little about a little bit more about the performances not exactly a stretch to cast andy taylor joy in a horror movie when everyone first kind of saw her in the witch but at the same time that all that casting announcement was early 2019 right and so that was before she was anywhere near the biggest star she is now with uh the queen's gambit kind of blowing up last year so foresight there and at that point i mean jojo rabbit hadn't come out yet right so people had seen thomas and mckenzie and like leave no trace and uh not much else so pretty good gets for him at that point in time before they became bigger stars in advance of this movie coming out uh daniel we talked you gave me a little bit of an education about giallo movies i mean i guess i'd seen a couple but didn't even actually know that i had but when we talked about malignant which you know just a, 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 which was a great time doing that with you uh and then you're like hey i i went in on that podcast because it's giallo and i want to talk about that and it's edgar right when did uh last night so come up on your radar and what were, what, what were your ultimate feelings uh about this movie overall Oh, well, as soon as I heard Edgar Wright's doing a horror movie, I was in, you know, mm-hmm. I love Edgar Wright. I, I didn't uh, know if you, I didn't actually know if you're a big Edgar Wright guy or not. I knew Elijah kind of was. I, no, no, no. I am. I mean, I feel like at a certain, I feel like certain point, if you're into movies and you go to the movies and such today, you're, you gotta be a fan of Edgar Wright on some level. Right. Uh, I really love the world's end. I think that might've been my favorite movie of 2013 when I saw it. And, uh, you know, Baby Driver, I saw like three or four times in theaters. Like, I do love Edgar Wright. And, you know, to hear him do take all the horror, and then I, you know, hear that it's like this kind of 60s thing, and then I see the trailer, and it's going, it's got this giallo colors and shit. Like, I was like, okay, this is this is one for me. Um, so, yeah, no, the trailer got me so jazzed. I didn't see, like, the second trailer. Uh, obviously, I thought this movie took place in New York. Um, <laughs> I don't really know the look of cities well. The first trailer was just Anya Taylor-Joy singing that song. Like, I don't know what it's called. She keeps downtown. 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 I assume it's called yeah. downtown. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> I, I don't want to be you know, too, too... Midtown too. by Petula Clark. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I didn't even know it took place in London because I didn't watch the second trailer. Uh, you know, and then I went to rush the second trailer after I saw the movie. I was like, oh, okay. Anyways, um, so yeah, this would have been on my radar pretty early, and I was very interested in seeing it, although it turns out to be not quite what I was expecting. Uh, you know, uh, you know, you, y'all can, you know, debate, debate me on this if you, if you wish, but like, I feel that the Giallo influence is actually very minuscule. Like, there's a little bit of it stylistically, there's a little bit of it in the, the visual element, certainly as it gets more lurid, you know, start using the cut that those, uh, those Dario Argento colors and such. But I feel like in both theme and in uh, execution, it owes more to like British horror of the 60s, 70s. Uh, 
you know, articles on the movie constantly pointed out that, you know, uh, don't look now, uh, Nicholas Rokes, don't look now, and uh, Polanski's Repulsion were both like key influences on this movie. And I think that it shows so much that I, 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 it's really hard for me to talk about the movie without comparing it to those two. Yeah. Um, and I think even thematically, just the, 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 you know, fractured mental state of the main character and the, you know, the, the constant blending, blurring of the lines between reality and fantasy. Um, I feel like those also owe a load to a lot of those psych, uh, you know, those um, psychological thrillers of the 60s, like the works of like Peter Walk, Pete Walker, like The Comeback and uh, what is it called? Like Die Screaming Marianne, I think, Schizo, um, all those sorts of things, you know? Um, yeah. Well, Elijah, I guess then I'll go back to you. And before I even really give my opinions, I'm curious then, what was your ultimate ultimate overall uh, opinion of just like how effective the movie was and how much you liked it and how much of that and how much of that was because of these performances that you were kind of interested to see and how much of it was because of everything else? Because to me, the whole movie really also felt like a big like a big flex by Edgar Wright, just by, hey, look what I can do and look what I can look how I can make this all, all of this look. Well, first to touch on that, I think that's always a danger for Edgar Wright's films. I think he's he's someone who knows his power level <laughs> and is not afraid to show it. Uh, and he is always constantly on the verge of tipping over. Uh, and I will say that I think in this movie, that's honestly, that might be the biggest fault with it for me, is that he he does kind of lose the, he does sort of lose the plot, it, which is a weird way of saying it. But, um, you know, he, I, I I wish he had calmed down a little bit because what this movie ended up being is this kind of like, will it blend movie of like 12 different, 12 different influences and the Giallo aspect of it that I was excited for kind of, you know, it wasn't at the top of the list of things I really cared about, but I was curious to see Edgar Wright do a Giallo and really what ended up, happening is it didn't it, it it didn't it didn't really end up happening there was there was some visual influence um and some narrative device influence which we can talk about once we kind of get to the more spoilery section but uh overall it felt like the giallo elements were kind of grafted on um and and you know by contrast that that british mod psych horror or really just you know 60s psych horror Polanski, obviously, Repulsion, a big influence. And, you know, the, the ones that the other ones that Daniel ran down, I also got a sense of even blow up, honestly, you know, Antonioni's film um, blow up, which which is a little bit more like artsy and avant garde, but thematically much, much more in line with what this movie was trying to do versus something like a Suspiria or, a you know, or a phenomenon or, a, a you know, Inferno or, or Bay of Blood or any of the other you know, 1960s, 70s Italian uh, giallo horror films. So I, I kind of, I think for me, that was the biggest, the biggest knock was just kind of having to look past my disappointments with the, st with the stylistic and narrative elements of the film. Now I will say the performances did help quite a bit. Um, I thought I thought Thomas and McKenzie did phenomenal. I mean, I was I was expecting Anya Taylor Joy to kind of steal the scene, but she really she didn't. I mean, Anya Taylor Joy did a great job, but her performance was much more like physical and 
you know, evocative, whereas Thomas and McKenzie had to like bear a lot of the narrative weight. Um, and I thought she did a really, really good job. Not, not that I was like, oh, Thomas and McKenzie's a bad actress and this is going to be bad, but I was, I was not expecting how much she ended up carrying. Um, and she did, she, she just did really good. Diana Rigg, uh, we'll talk about, I guess, a little bit more in the spoilery section, but what a send off for, for Diana. Um, I thought, you know, I, I thought everybody down the line, I thought even the small moments from Rita Tushingham, you know, who's a, a longtime veteran who appeared in these kind of movies back in the 1960s when she was young, you know, uh, having her uh, in this film was, you know, just a nice touch. And she did a really good job. She, she's Ellie's grandma. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Daniel, you were nodding a lot as Elijah was talking. It seems like, and I, I had read, I had read your letterbox review and I, so I kind of had an idea of where you, where your head might've been at with this, but it, it seems like you kind of agree in that, like a lot of these movies that you're fans of that it influenced, like it didn't necessarily like take from those in the way that was most effective for you. Yeah. I, I agree, especially with the idea that like his biggest enemy here was his self and his own like ability to make stuff work, his own attention to detail. You know, Edgar Wright is a guy in full command of like, you know, his technical prowess and he's not afraid to show it. I think that in uh, Baby Driver and in most of his films, it really does all come together beautifully. But there's always a danger, like Elijah said, tipping over into just, uh, you know, uh, attempting to do the most stylish thing all the time. Uh, and I feel like this movie does he, he does kind of do that. Any single element of the movie, I think, is absolutely phenomenal. Granted, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not quite up to up to Elijah's level here when it comes to being able to dissect, you know, shot composition and, you know, cinematography and all that. But I, you know, every single I, I think the cinematography is phenomenal. I see like, you know, the way he moves the camera around. And I'm like, damn, nobody moves the camera around like that these days. OK, OK, I see you. He's playing around with mirrors and such. All right. I see you. Um, I love all the performances. Uh, I agree with you. Thomas and McKenzie has to shoulder a lot, especially considering how, how messy the narrative is. The one element that I'm not too big a fan of, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, you know, she has to shoulder a lot of responsibility and she does it with a plum. Like she's absolutely great. Uh, Anya Taylor-Joy is good. Granted, I'm not a huge fan of hers and she doesn't have to do much beyond like the physical here, but you know, she does good. Diana Rigg, Terrence Stamp, all of them. They're doing great stuff. Uh, the, the music, the use of music, which is, you know, so characteristic of Edgar Wright, that's also really good. Uh, you know, uh, clearly this, is, this dude wants to expose us to as much 60s Brit pop as he possibly can. And you know, I'm walking out the theater, I'm humming stuff to myself, I'm humming old 60s pop songs to myself. I'm like, damn, I need to pull out that circle. I need to pull out Red Rubber Ball, man. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, despite how, how great I find every individual element, uh, I don't feel like they come together in service of like a like a grand narrative theme. Um, I'm all for you know a filmmaker you know stretching his legs, doing what he or she can do, and uh, you know pulling from their influences to make something new. The problem here is that uh, the movie is being pulled in so many different directions. It's trying to cover a lot of ground. It's trying to cover like, you know, how women are treated in modern society. It's trying to cover, you know, mental health. It's trying to cover, you know, it's trying to deliver scares as a horror movie. It's trying to do so many things. And I don't feel like the constant, uh, you know, energy of the filmmaking really does anything in service to any one uh, theme or goal of the movie. Uh, I don't think it really, acts in service of any one serve, uh, goal. 
So uh, it, ultimately, it still works for me because of how accomplished it all is technically. I'm not bored watching this movie, but it, it does it does strike me as one of Edgar Wright's messiest. Well, I think one of the things that maybe I think I might have even liked it a little better than both of you guys, and it, it might be because I, as you guys know, I'm just I do, I'm not the biggest horror guy. I've, I've I mean I've done a better I've done a better job of trying to revisit some stuff the last few years. I mean I've I've watched I mean I've seen Don't Look Now. I've seen Suspiria. I, I now watched Repulsion because Daniel told me to. And like there, there is that one shot at the end where it's like, oh yeah, that, that that's that's repulsion right there. That that was like, okay, I got that. That's on the nose. But I mean, everything else probably just felt a little fresher to me and a little different. And when you say the narrative got messy, I, I I suppose you guys are more referring to the back half of this movie. But like the you know the first half of this movie isn't really what's what it's advertised as being anyway because it's that's not the part that's really a horror movie. But it's it's still a lot of fun to watch. I would say all the way up basically and through through the through the downtown sequence where um and then where Ellie all of a sudden is like having a moment of success at school. And then, you know, that's where it obviously turns into a different movie after that. And I, I don't want to fun up. I'm sorry. I just wanted to say that. Yeah. To your point, like the first part of this movie, actually, I think is the part that works the best Mm -hmm. that, that that, admittedly that theme, uh, you know, of like the dangers of looking to the past with this, you know, this rotating glasses. I think that actually was uh, rather effective. Well, it didn't necessarily feel that dangerous at that point though. It's like fun up until that point, I'd say. Right. It's fun on a, like, you know, it's fun because, like, you know, it's the, all the colors. And, of course, you're seeing Anna Taylor Joy dancing along, you know, with, uh, with you know, the, the cameras moving around them. And she's being swapped out with, uh, you know, uh, Thomas and McKenzie and such. It's fun on a filmmaking level, yeah. But you can sort of get the sense of how she's kind of losing herself and losing yeah. her ability to relate to the world around her and missing out on the things around her because she keeps going back to this glorified, depiction of the past even in the midst of all that fun i think that's actually where the movie succeeds the most and if, and there's there's also to be fair there's also a theory in filmmaking of 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 native tension the idea that the audience is aware that they're watching a horror film so mm-hmm. everything is going to be viewed through a lens of this is sinister so he doesn't even necessarily need to try too hard to make it to make the first half somewhat sinister there and there are definitely moments before the wheels really, you know, before the, you know, the gears start turning and before it becomes more of a horror film, there are still parts in the first half that feel like, oh, what's happened? Where, where is this going to go? Like, we're expecting something to happen because we are expecting it to be a horror film. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like the uh, the suitcase underneath the, the bus seat. Yeah. 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 And, and like, I mean, every everything when she's at the school, basically, for the most part, it, it, something just obviously doesn't feel good in large part to those to those other girls. But you just you're, you wonder how all the ways in which that could go bad. And we we obviously eventually see a lot of that. But I guess I was just I, I'm wondering, you, you've talked you've talked a lot about the narrative and like I, I, I totally get what everyone's saying about that. And then it doesn't necessarily feel as uh, it, it feels it feels a little more all over the place than the first half of that movie. But I'm wondering, uh, as you as you were watching this, did you guys think like, oh, is there a way in which it stays on that track in the first part of the movie and like kind of holds that like and, and kind of like sees one tight track all the way through, for lack of a better term, as opposed to what it ultimately did? Did you see a better version of this in your head as you were watching it? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, the biggest problem, honestly, with the narrative is the lack of character development. Just straight up, you know, this is a, it's a story where there, there really is no character development because the characters in the past are frozen in time. So they don't change, only the situation changes. 
Um, and we as audience, you know, as the audience, we only see the situation change. There's no character development for characters in the past. And for Thomas and Mackenzie's character, for Eloise in the present, she is viewing that frozen past. And so her character development only comes in relation to that. So I think maybe it's all kind of wrapped up in, in some of the bigger problems that I had, but I, maybe I just wish the film had kind of slowed down and taken some more time to actually focus on the characters a bit, because that's what movies like repulsion and don't look now did really well, uh, you know, compared to, perhaps this film is they spend a lot more time with the characters. I mean, you talk to people about don't look now and you know, what are the, what are the scenes people remember from that movie? People remember the ending, you know, yeah. they, uh, they remember the ending, but people, and I mean, I, the risk of sounding lurid or, you know, or no, they remember that sex scene. people remember the sex scene because it's, it's character development done in a, what was at the time, an incredibly new and risky way of doing it. But that's what that scene is. That scene has nothing to do with the horror of the movie or anything. It's just, uh, you know, it was an incredibly naturalistic moment and it developed so much about the characters without necessarily saying a whole lot, you know, and that that's the kind of scene that I feel like this movie was missing. And I'm not saying that this movie should have had more sex scenes. What it should have had more of was scenes that helped to. Maybe had a couple scenes like the, like the party that she goes to for the school, but without that turning into another one of the, her episodes. Exactly. Yes. Um, Like a moment where you see the characters actually living through their world because, because of the nature of the narrative and because of this, you know, uh, uh, non-linear narrative where she's jumping in between time periods uh she's never given a chance to develop as a character it all becomes procedural in a way you know uh because it's all about uncovering what exactly is going on with the situation uh, and you know there's a world where that in itself is interesting but i think that it becomes i think that's where the style you know the style element comes into play and it just becomes so overwhelming that it's hard to really find anything to grasp onto well, and, and it's funny that you mentioned that, too, because this is and this is what I was saying earlier, where Edgar Wright's done two and a half, three horror movies, you know, before this film. And I think it's important to recognize, like, what makes those films strong, because all of his horror films have this kind of like central mystery, right? This like this twist, this tilt, like something is not going the way people expect it to go. And the reason I say two and a half is because I kind of like hot fuzz teeters on the edge for me because it's like, it's a subterfuge horror film where it doesn't start as that, but sort of becomes horror more towards the end. And it's weird to think, you know, kind of taking in a different like light that this is Edgar Wright's most normal horror film. Like it's, it's his most straightforward compared to something like The World's End or something like Shaun of the Dead or Hot Fuzz, you know, like this, this film is pretty straightforward. Like, Mm -hmm. and I, I don't necessarily like count that against it, but it does strike me as kind of one of the weaknesses of the film is that it just, it was ambitious visually and technically, but it wasn't ambitious narratively or thematically in the way that I expect Edgar Wright films to be. Right. And well, you said it's not ambitious narratively. We've talked about like this narrative and how 
again, I, 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 don't, I don't disagree with you guys about how the there would have been other ways to develop the characters a bit more. But do you think as far as the other, I guess, another part of the narrative, do you think he has anything interesting to say about the way that we treated women back then versus how we do now and how, you know, whether it's all that different or just trauma in general? Or do you feel like he's just kind of putting it all out there and hoping something sticks? I will say that I felt that and, and you know, this is definitely it's probably a weird conversation to have where it's like three dudes talking about yeah, this, but fair enough. you know, it's, it is what it is. Right. <laughs> um, I, I will say that I, I actually did feel that the, the film regained some of its legs a little bit towards the end. Um, and, and it's what kind of brought it back together for me and, and allowed me to give it that extra half a star to bump it from the three and a half. I was probably going to give it to a four um, was that I felt like it did a really good job kind of, addressing something in a different way that we see addressed in films a lot which is like this you know this kind of idea of like and it gets brought up in in worse films of you know is violence against abusers ever justified right and that becomes like such like a touchy and like a subject that frankly i don't think many people are qualified to take on and I think Edgar Wright kind of skirted it in a really good way here and not not in a deflective way. I think what for me, the kind of wrap up of the film helped to bring back around was this idea that it's like that stuff is in the past. There's no way we can relitigate it. The only thing that we can really do is like learn from it and and move on and try and like synthesize it and be better people today. And I thought I felt like that was one of its strengths, narratively speaking, that it, it was able to kind of recover to that point later in the film. You know, are, are we entering into the just the spoilers territory right now? Yeah, we might want to say sure, sure, let's do it. We were, we were kind of bordering on that anyway. And I feel like people that listen to this point probably got a good idea of what this movie is all, all about and what it's trying to do. Anyway, yeah, I will note that I'm also going to probably spoil like repulsion and, you know, well, um, that's their fault. I'm glad I saw it since you told me to. But people have had. 60 years to watch that yeah. or 50, 55 years to watch that and be surprised anyway yeah yeah it sounds like uh all three of us would recommend this movie to a certain extent uh to varying extents anyway though we all like all recommend seeing it um even if it seems like everyone has their own criticism so um if you don't want to spoil go away now um but then come back and listen to us talk about the rest of it daniel did you say so did you have somewhere you wanted to take that that was a little spoilery though or was it yeah more in terms of repulsion so you know ultimately what you know what turns out happening narratively is, uh, you know, this entire time she's been wondering what happened to, you know, Anna Taylor-Joy's character. She's assumed that she's been murdered. It turns out that Diana Rigg is Anna Taylor-Joy grown up and she killed not only uh, Matt Smith, but all the dudes that she was, you know, pimped out to. And I'm, I appreciate kind of that the movie does take a sort of like stand uh, on the, on the issue of violence toward abusers, uh, I appreciate that it's it seems pretty it seems pretty enthusiastically, yeah. Because at one point she says, I think Diana Rigg is like, you know, I'm not a bad person. It wasn't my fault or something like that. And uh, Thomas and McKenzie is like, I know, and it doesn't seem like there's any uh, underlying like irony to either of those two statements. I think that is the movie's perspective, and I appreciate that. Uh, however, just I don't know how messy the narrative had been up till then. It it does kind of feel to me kind of unearned. It feels kind of tacked on. And I, I guess I don't know. Like I think that it ultimately for me does the ending for me does end up 
feeling a little bit unsatisfying and not in the least bit because I went and I watched Repulsion right after I saw this movie and I felt that Repul A, the, the, the entire finale is like kind of ripped straight from Repulsion. Like, you know, uh, fucking Diana Rigg is slashing at her with a knife and like the, the shots are exactly the same as, uh, I'm sorry, the actress from, from uh, Repulsion, her name was- Catherine Deneuve. Yes, Catherine Deneuve. Uh, she, uh, you know, the exact same shots of her slashing away at the landlord in uh, in uh, in Repulsion, uh, and then like you know the 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 hands coming out of the walls grabbing at Thomas and Mackenzie is straight from Repulsion. Also, honestly, even like the theme of uh, you know how society treats women and how women are, have to you know live in a you know such a repressive world, um, that's also kind of at the heart of Repulsion, and I think Repulsion just accomplishes that uh with a singular a more singular mind uh with less resource at its disposal with less uh you know less of the uh stylish uh flourishes of edgar wright and it manages to deliver to sell that message uh with just with far greater impact than this movie did achieve in part because of all the stylistic flourishes in part because of the narrative messiness um, so yeah, I found the ending actually quite underwhelming. Oh, and I'm sorry, I, we hadn't talked about this movie as a horror movie. It's also just not very scary. Elijah had brought up that, um, you know, this movie narratively is a little bit less, in a way, as a horror movie is less ambitious than his previous projects, uh, just because it's fairly straightforward. And yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, like the, I, I'm sorry, I'm like, just a, even on a visual level, I think this is the one area the movie fails. The enemy is just like misshapen faced ghosts. Like you've seen that shit for like 20 years, man. I saw that on like Hill House. Like what the, like it's, it's, it's completely lacking in ingenuity. Uh, you know, it uses like, it's disconcerting a little bit, you know, it's, uh, you know, the use of editing, which is like, you know, kind of where it also gets its influence from uh, not only uh, Don't Look Now, but also some of the more like esoteric giallo like a hatchet for the honeymoon or your vice is a locked room and only i have the key where they're also playing around with time and perception of reality and such uh so it's disconcerting and maybe eerie but it's just never very scary uh and i feel like in order to you know for this movie to work on like even just a procedural moment to moment level in the way that would have made this a, a bit more successful it did kind of need to be scary and it just, it just wasn't. It was very, I felt uninspired in delivering the scares. Maybe it's just me not being like as big of a horror fan in general. And like, I'm like, oh, I'll enjoy this for everything else it has to offer. And I don't really need the scares because I don't disagree with you that it wasn't particularly scary. Were you thinking, were you conscious of that as you were watching Elijah? Were you like, oh, I'm not really like actually uh, that uh, as unnerved or scared as I could be? Or like, were you like, oh, I, I'm, I, this is, this is suitably creepy and that's enough. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, there was one one jump scare, which was the the double fake out on Thomas and Mackenzie waking up in the bed, and one of the dudes like grabbing her arm. That was the only time I was like, mm -hmm. oh, like that kind of gave me a little start. But yeah, I mean, it's one of those hard things where the the uh, you know the visual design of the horror elements ties into the narrative and the narrative is not the strongest and so that ends up meaning that the visual design of the horror elements is not the strongest you know the the dudes with no faces narratively make sense because the idea is right that diana rigg slash anya taylor joy's character 
had had to mentally divorce these guys from identity in order to convince herself that what she was doing was okay so it would follow then that their ghosts all have you know no not no faces but they're like their features are obscured and and uh and and that that so it makes sense from a narrative perspective it's just you know compared to the big blue eye laser beam blue blood aliens from <laughs> from world's end or you know the just the like the the folk horror fake out of hot fuzz or you know the zombies of Shaun of the dead which were frankly right at the absolute bleeding edge of the zombie horror <laughs> wave of the 2000s like this just doesn't it doesn't feel very unique Mm-hmm. And and maybe maybe in general a problem that maybe both Daniel and I are coming at here is just the problem of massive expectations, right? Where it's like we, you know, it's hard to it's hard to judge a, an Edgar Wright film the way we might if this was like the first time either of us were watching some B-list Giallo film. You know, if this was a movie made by anybody else, it may be would have been way more impressive and surprising to all of us. But for Edgar Wright, it just feels kind of, uh, okay. Well, let, let me ask about the ending then. Um, you know, all the other narrative issues, notwithstanding, uh, does that still work for you guys then? Just because like Diana Rigg is that great in that role specifically in how she just like re- reveals herself there. Cause I, I, I can kind of see how in a, in a, in a vacuum, maybe that's not the most sh- shocking twist, but at the same time, like she is like uh, just uh, so uh, devilish at the same time. And it's such an effective way where up until that point, that character had been something like so different, in a, but also in a convinc- she was also doing that in a very convincing way. Yeah, I'm, I think I've already mentioned, you know, that I thought Diana Rigg was great. And I, I think even Se- the second time we talked about her in the last year, remember we talked about her in Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Oh, we did. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Because we talked uh, about talking about I the classics. I missed out on that. That's that's one of the best bonds. I'm telling you, oh, it no, is. Yeah, I, we, my we, opinion, it is the best bond. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're not talking about that one. <laughs> I'm sorry, sorry, I couldn't help but say it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we, all, we all had nice things to say about it when we talked about it with Fred Washington. Yeah, I, I think Diana Rigg throughout her career has had something i think part of the reason why she was extremely popular as a bond girl in the 60s why she was extremely popular on the avengers and then why she was a natural pick for uh, elena terrell in game of thrones was there's always been something kind of hard-edged about her uh and a little bit more like real than and you know that's not to say that like bridget bardo or whoever is like they're like not a good actress but like i think and i think frankly it sometimes worked to diana Riggs' disadvantage she's she was not in her life as famous as as i think she probably could have been because i think she has always kind of had this like edge to her and i thought this role was a great send-off to her and a great example of that where like she can play somebody who is who is a, a nice, like, pleasant, grandmotherly kind of woman, but then can be really sinister or really off-putting at some times. And, you know, I, I thought she did a great job. Agree. 
yeah. You guys have any thoughts on Matt Smith? I don't know. I don't know. Like, I mean, I, he, he's a guy that like, I, I think is pretty interesting and in that he can, he seems to really be able to like move between uh, genres with a decent amount of ease ever since like I first came to know him as Dr. Who. I, it, it's fun. It's kind of fun to see the different things he pops up in. How did you think he fit into this world, Elijah? Dude just looks fucking evil and I'm glad people are finally <laughs> realizing it. Um, he does like Anya Taylor-Joy, he doesn't shoulder a lot of narrative weight. Um but he's definitely he plays the role well. I mean, he needs to fill that role of a, like a a debonair at the offset and then incredibly slimy person later on and it works well. You know, he's not I don't think he's necessarily like the acting star, but yeah. he does what he does what he's supposed to do. I'm realizing I've never seen him in anything else. This is the first movie, well, oh. other, other than Doctor Who. Uh, this is the first time I've seen him in a movie. Wait, Daniel, you don't watch The Crown? You know, it hasn't, I haven't gotten there yet. But, you know, one day my, you know, my still kind of there Anglophilia is probably going to make me watch it. Have you ever seen, uh, have, ever, have either of you guys ever seen Pride and Prejudice and Zombies? Yeah. That, oh, movie, just- that, that movie's awesome. Uh, he's like the best part of it too, actually. Um, he's just hilarious. Um, I don't know if I totally agree with the first part of that, but I would agree with the second one. <laughs> he's he's always he's always been. I like he didn't wasn't he? He was in the Terminator movie with Amelia Clark, like yeah, like six or seven years ago, and he was definitely one of the best parts of that movie because he plays a fucking robot, like he plays a killer robot. Oh, I didn't know that. Also, I did not know that movie was directed by Alan Taylor. That that tracks. Yeah, I, I think he's always kind of he's always he was in Lost River, which is another movie that it's not very good, but he appears in it in a somewhat sinister capacity. Uh, I, I think he has a, he has a knack for that. Mm. Uh, he was in actually he was in a movie uh, last year, the, another horror movie last year, which uh, was recommended to me by my, my girlfriend Haley called His House. Um I'm, I think I don't I know, Josh, you're not a huge horror person. Daniel, if you haven't seen his house, I would highly recommend it. It is about um, a refugee family from South Sudan that moves to uh, try moves to the UK to try to start a new life. You know, this ha- I had heard of this. I had heard of this. OK, yeah, I'm into it. Yeah, it's uh, it's it was quite good, quite good. And he is great in it. So. Um, I, you know, I, I thought this is not going to, this is not going to be the, the role that, you know, wins him any awards or puts him at the top of any of my lists, but He's like so Morbius for that. Uh, oh God. going to do it. Yeah. I, I'd, I'd forgotten. He's going to be in the, what the, the, um, the Targaryen spinoff game of Thrones spinoff too. Apparently he's like the lead in that. So uh, he is, he is, he's actually going to be in something that I think we're all going to be excited for. I think it, it, it date it, I don't know when it's dropping in the US. I think it comes out in the UK pretty soon. He's in uh, John Michael McDonough's new film. Uh the guy who did The Guard and Cavalry. Oh. Okay. Um, he is McDonough, the better of those brothers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um anyways, yes, all this is to say I thought Matt Smith did a good job being Matt Smith. So <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I, it, 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 he, he was good in like setting up that part of the movie where, it, you know, that, that, that it seemed like we all liked and he, and he, and he served his role uh, there well. Um, I, I don't know. Is there, is there anything else you want to touch on in this movie? We didn't already talk about Daniel. We didn't talk about uh, uh, um, 
Terrence Stamp being pretty creepy um, in that pub or um, any of that stuff? Is there anything in that corner of the movie or anything else I hadn't asked you about already that you wanted to touch on? Well, really, I think we did a good, I did a good job. Well, we did a good job. Congrats to you. Good job by you. (laughs) Kind of what I thought. I think that, you know, technically very accomplished. I feel like he stepped on his own toes with, you know, the stylish, uh, you know, flourishes and trying to fit all his influences into one movie. I think he crowds out, you know, you know, I I say all this. Um, I look, I feel like I've gotten to the point where I get a little, I don't know, I'm getting a little tired of like, you know, filmmakers cramming in all their influences to one movie, which look, I'm going to sound like a hypocrite when we get to the next movie. I was going to say, yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> I'll get into that there. But, um, you know, just for the sake of it, I do think this movie does do that certainly with repulsion, especially because uh, by the nature of the fact that they're cramming in not only repulsion, but all these other influences uh, and trying to juggle all these other things, uh, you know, it crowds it out in comparison to, uh, you know, which Paulson, which is a very singularly focused movie with a very limited uh, scope. And I think it just succeeds far, far greater. Any final thoughts on last night in Soho, Elisha? Yeah. I mean, I I think I would just agree with that. Generally speaking, I I was going to touch on one scene that I kind of keep coming back to is the scene where, uh, Eloise is in uh, you know one of her dreams in the past and it's kind of the first one where we fully see the the depths of like how bad things are getting for Sandy uh, in the past and she is in like a kind of like a seedy underground bar and keeps going back to this like champagne room with different guys and keeps having the same encounter and the scene ends with Eloise getting like frustrated and angry and smack like you can see her reflection in in the glass behind sandy and she breaks through the glass and like grabs sandy and then wakes up and then the like the wheels come like everything goes crazy after that moment and to me when i was watching it in my mind literally what i said was aha the giallo moment where it's like because every giallo film has a scene like that where the veil is pierced because that's such like an important concept in giallo films where the 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 veil of reality and 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 the immaterial or the veil of sanity and insanity is is pierced and then the the you know that opening is through which all of the evil things flow and and what ended up kind of coming from me watching that and having that reaction was definitely this feeling of like if this movie had just gone stronger in any one of the number of directions that it was being pulled in, it may have gotten that full extra star from me. It could have been one of my favorite films of the year as it is. I really like it because I'm a horror for stylish things, but I think it was, it's like I said at the beginning, I think it's biggest downfall was that it was just, it felt a bit like a kid playing with all of his toys which perfectly segues into the heart of they fall. So if we want to move on, let's. I will. Say, you know, that, was a very, that was a very poetic way to talk about Giallo, but the entire time you were talk, saying those things, I was thinking about the New York Ripper, which is about a serial killer. <laughs> that talks like Donald Duck. And I'm like, you know, maybe not all Giallo. Maybe not all Giallo. 
I'll just say one thing. I I couldn't help and like our friend Ben Lubin might have a stroke if he hears me like invoke the name of this movie, but I couldn't help but think a little bit about the neon demon as I was watching this because I I I, I kind of just want a creepy fashion movie. I, I you know, I, and that was what I thought when I watched the neon demon. It was like I, I I think this looks really interesting. I like some of the performances, but it just like goes off in a bunch of areas that like I didn't really care for. And I wanted you to like stay within this fashion world and just be creepy there. And I would have like been here for it. And I, and I, and if anything, I kind of had that same reaction here where it's like, I more so like I, I saw a lot of potential because like maybe some of the visual overload wasn't bothering me quite as much as it did you guys. So I was like, all right, just keep me in this world and maybe have some other way the creepy stuff works. It works its way in. And uh, instead of it, it maybe tried to do a bit much. And that's my thing. It's like, look, I really liked it because I liked looking at it. I like these performers and I, and, and a lot of the stylistic flourishes worked for me even more, but like, Hey, it seems like you guys kind of got away from this setting of this girl uh, trying to like find her footing in this town and just like send her off the deep end. That's the other thing I'll say actually. And I meant to mention this earlier is like, it wants to hint at like her having some other underlying mental health issues uh, that she might've inherited from her mom. And I don't really know if it actually does enough with that to really earn like the lip service that pays that. Uh, and I, it, it just seemed like, Hey, maybe that, that alone right there could have, you could have used that right there to invoke some other horror type elements while still like keeping it in this other type of like, telling it this other type of story about her in this trying to get used to this world. And I don't know, it certainly seemed like it could have, I don't know, straightened itself out narratively a little bit more and, uh, and, and just been, and been that one thing. And that's, that's what I'll say though. Again, still really enjoyed it. And honestly, I, I don't know if I'm as high on some of the earlier Edgar Wright stuff as like other people are like, I really like the world's end, but I'm actually not as high on hot fuzz and Shaun of the dead as it seems like a lot of people are. So, I mean, it's maybe on the level of that, even for me. And just cause I like so much of everything else that did that well. All right. Well, I guess now we'll move on to The Harder They Fall, uh, which is the uh, newest movie from uh, or it's a debut feature, right? From James Samuel. Yeah. Debut adapted from his short film. But yeah. Yeah. It is a Western that is based on mostly all real characters who are uh, black cowboys in the West at various times in the, you know, the. I guess the 1800s and late 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, but they're all just kind of all, all these actual real life characters. It's fictionalized versions of themselves. The movie makes that very clear from the opening frame where it just says these events are fictional, but these people existed. And we know that like this, uh, that this filmmaker is like, I'm going to take the, take the license I can to just put all these people in a story. I like we open up with a character named Nat love when he is like, you know, very young, he's eating dinner with his parents. Uh, when um, a man who we come to know is uh, a, a character named Rufus Buck uh, and his gang come into their home, uh, kill Nat's parents and uh, carve a cross into Nat's forehead. And then we jump ahead to 20 years later. There's an adult Nat Love uh, played by Jonathan Majors, who is now a, really a sharpshooting outlaw who uh, we see kill someone from Buck's gang as he is still on a revenge tour. He has other partners in his gang, uh, a quick draw named uh, Jim Beckworth, played by R.J. Seiler, who I hadn't seen in a while. And I really enjoyed him in this movie. We'll talk about him, I guess. And another guy, a sharpshooter named Bill Pickett. Uh, they ambush another uh, uh, Crimson Hood gang is what they go by. They, they, they ambush this gang as they are transporting a large amount of money, $25,000. Turns out that they actually stole that from Buck's gang. We also see in the meantime, we see Love traveling to meet his former lover uh, who's uh, playing uh, Celine Chain Odor, Mary Fields, who I guess in real life I saw also used to be known for like delivering mail with the with the big shotgun uh, was kind of her real life thing. 
he, he travels to like see her and it's, it's clear that they have a bit of a past. She doesn't like that. He's always off going to do all of his outlaw things. Uh, but then in the other corner of the movie, we see Buck's gang who is uh, led by Trudy Smith, just played by just in an incredibly all out performance from Regina, uh, Regina King. And uh, he, he has his own quick draw named Cherokee Bill played by Keith Stanfield. They ambush a train in which Buck is being transported by a group of uh, corrupt shoulders and, uh, they get them to uh, release him uh, by, you know, just uh, killing everyone, but also because they, you know, have some kind of pardon for him, though I'm not totally clear on uh, why he got pardoned. But uh, it's because of that pardon that uh, a marshal played by Delroy Lindo wants to team up with Love to uh, hunt Buck down. That reunites Jonathan Majors and Delroy Lindo after they played father and son in last year's The Five Bloods. And uh, the, the crew that Love has assembled is just kind of set on a collision course with Buck's crew. Uh, Daniel... I, I want to ask you just about uh, a movie like this. It seems like it's one that, again, kind of like Elijah stuck his claim to last night in Soho. You're like, I want to talk about this movie. And again, I don't even know, as it often is when you say you want to talk about something, it's not always because you're like, I think that movie is going to be awesome. But I think you kind of know like a movie like this, it's either going to be for you or it's like really going to disappoint you. Is, and I, I don't know if that's if, if I got the right read on that, but like it's kind of the kind of thing where it's like, hey, this should be for you. And if it's not for you, it's because it really did something wrong. But it seems like this movie probably really did something right for you. Is that am I correct in making that statement? You're absolutely correct. That is exactly how I choose what to press to you. Yeah, I, that's what I want to cover because you know I heard of, I saw I heard about this movie actually like you know like back when it was announced and I'm like all right I'm in for that. I've seen a lot of black exploitation movies um, over the years. I am looking right now at a list of like black westerns on Letterbox. I've seen like twenty of them. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of them, you know, older, you know, the, uh, the, the Legend of Nigga Charlie trilogy. Actually, I'm missing I'm missing the, the, the second one. Uh, you can call it Black Charlie if you'd like. Uh, <laughs> thank thank you. I, I want to make that clear. Uh, you know, 100 Rifles, uh, you know, uh, Take a Hard Ride. You know, I've seen a lot of these things. Uh, and so, you know, when I hear that they're making not only like a black Western, but like a star studded black Western with all the current big black stars in Hollywood right now, I'm like, all right, I am. I am in. I'm in for this. But then I saw the trailer and I was like, OK, they're going for not only a Western, but they're doing the spaghetti Western thing, which, you know, granted is more what people go to these days if they want to do like a Western throwback. But, you know, it's welcome for me because I'm also a very, very big uh, spaghetti Western fan. I've seen like a hundred Westerns, I think, at this point, And like almost all of them have been like of the, you know, Italian variety. Uh, and, you know, those are those Westerns have like a deconstructive element, you know, of the, the myth of the American West, which plays very nicely into making a black Western, which, you know, puts black people back in the narrative of the American West. Uh, uh, in fact, uh, Take a Hard Ride is actually a spaghetti Western that teams up like, you know, Jim Brown with Fred Williamson, with Jim Kelly and such, uh, you know. So, yeah, basically, this movie is pulling from a lot of the, the movies that I'm familiar with, from a lot of the sources that I'm familiar with. And I'm curious to see whether it creates something uh, afresh, whether it creates an, an interesting you know, a solid imitation of what's been done before uh, or whether it just fails to do anything. Well, as you said, when we were talking about last night in Soho, like you said, you were going to sound like a big hypocrite, but, uh, but, but, but like, I don't even know if that's necessarily the case, but it seems like it's very clear that this movie drawing from a lot of things you're familiar with, how did it do that in a way that was like 
let's just say I know because I know you like the movie. How 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 was it able to draw from all those things in a way that like worked in say like you know maybe last night in Soho didn't and that it clearly had influences but just uh, maybe didn't necessarily like crib from them in the in, in the most compelling way compared to whatever however you think the heart of they fall succeeded. Okay. By the way, this is a dual episode, right? If you're listening to this, you've listened to. Yes. Well, I mean, they, 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 I'm going to put timestamps on it. So someone, for some reason, watched The Heart of They Fall, but not uh, Last Night and So. They didn't watch it. But I mean, I don't really care. You can just, if, if you want to talk about them in tandem, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I feel I ought to. So like I said, talking about Last Night and So, I am getting a little tired of the fact that even like the movies that I love this year, you know, my favorite movies of this year, like this malignant um, Wrath of Man, all of them are kind of these genre throwbacks to stuff that just doesn't that doesn't dominate or doesn't come out as often today as it would have back in the day. Um, and to me, it's refreshing in the current climate uh, where if you're not watching like, you know, like a like a big blockbuster, then I guess you're stuck with like the A24 style, you know, or like some slow cinema crap. Like, you know, like yeah, I'm getting I've seen so much. I'm getting a little tired of it all. So like when I see something that comes out today that is hearkening back to uh, a, a style or a, a film that is, you know, not quite as not quite as seen, and it does so uh, in a kind of faithful way that is still putting it apart from what comes out today. Then I'm interested. In the case of Last Night in Soho, yeah, they're hearkening back to like Repulsion, which is like you know 1965, but they're doing so by way of you know this. Uh, uh, it doesn't look all that different from you know what you see today we're talking about how the ghosts in it were like pretty much what you'd seen like something like hill house or something like that you know what i mean and in the case of this it's it's really really fun for me um on a on a you know in the same way of last night in soho like on a technical level i actually rather enjoyed pretty much every element of the movie but it also is very very limited in scope honestly this isn't a movie that is about much. Uh, the opening title card tells you these people existed and that's pretty much all the movie does with its premise. Uh, it puts black people and black faces back in the American West where you know they were far more prominent uh, in real life than you ever see in like the American or Italian Westerns of old. But it doesn't do much more than that to, uh, uh, it doesn't really dive into like an exploration of race in the American uh, West or anything like that. You know, there's a little bit of that in Idris Elba's plan for like a, like a black Mecca in America and such. But, you know, it doesn't really dive into the politics of it very much. Um, it just is, uh, it's satisfied with uh, just showing you their faces and going on this very, you know, uh, right. standard kind of plot. It limits its focus in a way that it let, allows for a, a space for the stylistic flourishes to breathe, which I feel like last night in Soho didn't. Yeah, Elijah. When you see a movie like this, and are are you happy? Are are you content to like necessarily to not necessarily have like a, um, you know, a super involved uh, plotty story with a lot of with with with, with like some larger message? Because I, I personally, I always find it's like putting all these stars in the movie and just letting them do and just letting them have fun and watching them just like you know do cowboy things. Like that was enough for me. I don't know what what were your what were you hoping to get out of this movie uh, when when you saw what what what. It, what it looked like it was going to be on the surface. That, that's exactly what I was hoping yeah. for. I was hoping to be quite honest. I was hoping for all black free fire. Like I was hoping for, you know, a movie that was just, that just relished in showing 
these characters, if you're, if the, you know, and as Daniel said, the point is pretty clearly laid out in the title cards. These people existed. And so what I would have kind of wished was that it had just focused on, you know, the stylistic and narrative mythologizing that we kind of expect from Western films. And I'm not saying that like it should have been less ambitious, but if you're going to sow like thematic seeds in so many different, like, there was there were so many threads in this movie that just go nowhere and i i wish i almost wish that they hadn't done that like i almost wish it had just been an even slighter concept in terms of just like there's this town you got one group of gangsters here who are trying to you know levy attacks or whatever and another group that have a personal vendetta and are going to go in and like smoke them all like that would have been to me a better film the problem was this film just it sets so much up and then doesn't really resolve any of it. It res- it resolves the central the, the most central storyline. And I don't necessarily love the way it resolves it, but we'll get to well, that later on. But like it, it resolves that single storyline and nothing else. And I was just like, God, I almost wish there was nothing else because then it would it wouldn't feel as disappointing in well, some so, regard. So what was something that did feel like unfulfilled to you? Or what, what was what, what was one uh, path that went down that it didn't really see all the way through that bothered you? So I think, yeah, the the first one is just Idris Elba's or Rufus Buck, the character's name, any of his motivations for what he's doing. Um, because there is there's a very interesting kernel that's there, right? That, uh, you know, it's kind of danced around this idea that he wants to take this town, Redwood, and turn it into... Uh, the black Mecca turn it into uh, a new settlement that black people can come to in the, in the American West and feel empowered and, and whatever. The problem is the movie does not do anything to make Idris Elba in any way likable or to humanize his quest at all. He gives a great speech about, you know, like the importance of, of, you know, like why he has to have an iron fist in running this town. And then he walks into the crowd and shoots a man to death for like, even like barely even questioning it. I think the guy in the crowd basically said like, I think I'm gonna leave. And Idris Elba shoots him to death for saying he's gonna leave. And I'm like, well, you just, it just loses any goodwill and then the movie doesn't really do anything else with that they just kind of make Idris Elba just more and more like vicious until the end of the film and then it's over uh similarly it during his escape from uh from I guess it's implied that they're Union soldiers you know or or post-Civil War American soldier uh, custody on on the train there is this kind of kernel dropped in about like uh, no, it's not a military colonel. That's like a, a corn colonel. A, um, this kernel of an idea about like uh, he's getting a pardon because the government wanted to cover up something that the Union soldiers did during the war. Again, the problem being that they never come back to that at all. Uh, Regina King like flashes the you know the the pardon and says like, well, we're getting a pardon for him because the government couldn't live with you know the 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 secret being out in the open that you guys killed a bunch of like children, women and children in this town. But that's not like all they do is they, then they just let, they let Rufus buck out and then kill everyone. And it's never really like that. That element is never examined more. And it's just things like that where it, it feels a bit like throwing stuff at the wall. And I just, I wish it had been more narrow. Well, that, that specific sequence in the train, I don't know. I, I didn't necessarily think too much of that. I was just like, all right, we're doing the thing. 
we're going to have a cool scene on a train to get us to where we need to go. And I didn't really need to go anywhere. I, I did not really need a whole lot of else, a whole lot else with respect to what these, with respect to what these white characters did. I guess I did think a little bit about how it seemed that there was some kind of pardon in that maybe, I guess they implied that Buck's crew was working with some other kind of governmental authority where they were like, look, they're, they're giving, they're giving us the permission to get this guy off this train. Cause whoever is empowering us to do so just really doesn't like you soldiers. So like there was something there where it seemed like they might've been working with someone else, but I just kind of took that for what it was. I mean, Daniel, I mean, I'm curious, I'm curious, I'm curious what you, what you think about Elijah just said, were, were there any points in this movie where you're like, eh, I could have done without that. And I could have focused on this more. No, I, I actually do agree with the moment he said, the moment when he, you asked like, you know, uh, what's an example of an element that gets brought up and then dropped? I, the first thing I thought of was the fact that, you know, Idris Elba gives the speech about <laughs> how important this dream is, how this isn't for him. This is for this is for his people. And then the next thing he does kills is straight up. <laughs> like, Yo, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't have to pay this much. Like, we literally can't pay this much. Like, you know, I feel you and I feel the frustration. I would just say that for me, uh, the movie is so much uh, a genre exercise uh, that it's just easy for me to forgive. I'm so used to seeing these sorts of things being treated like, you know, uh, in like, this is probably more of a spaghetti Western thing. Like, uh, of course, maybe not in the Leone, like more, more polished Westerns. But if you watch like a man called Blade or something, like they bring up this kind of things all the time to provide like an interesting motivation for a villain or an, or an avenue for which they can explore an idea in the middle of a scene and do so in a very stylish way. But then immediately skate over to get to the next one. Um, I can understand wanting to see something like that either develop further or just keeping a tighter focus in the in the in the way of I guess you were describing I think like a Yojimbo plot, Elijah. What are you, I'm sorry, two gangs like two gangs just fighting each yeah, other. Yeah, and, and exactly, yes, other, like, like where it's you yeah. know it's just a like there is the only excuse for like the character interaction is just the plot in, in a way making it procedural so that there's nothing else to focus on other than the style by which you approach the plot. I understand that. I'm just saying that in this case, I'm just willing to excuse that because I've seen so many of these movies and like they, I mean, not to say you haven't, but like, uh, you know, so many of these movies are like sort of uh, just exercises in style to begin with. They do this sort of thing all the time. And for me, the technical elements, like the individual elements are also rich for me that like, uh, it just, I'm willing to, I'm willing to excuse that. Right. Yeah, no, no. I mean, it's your mileage is going to vary with this, with, I guess, all the other, any of that stuff that like we've highlighted is maybe lacking a little bit. If like you get just enough out of everything else. And I, I feel like I'm probably a little more in Daniel's camp and that like, I just, I just had so much fun watching the rest of it, you know? That said, actually, I did read Elijah's review and uh, I wanted you to go into a little bit more of the technical elements because you're bringing up stuff that like, you know, again, I'm not as schooled. I don't really notice. Uh, so I know Elijah. Some of the technical elements you said that they weren't really that that impressive. Yeah. Yeah. So I and this is not to say like I I think in terms of like I don't think it's oh you want to like like lower your expectations because it's a spaghetti western mm-hmm. and I would say that this is clearly made by a loving like a by a by a loving director a loving group of filmmakers who got together to make this who who want to make a spaghetti western and and the the trappings are all there 
the ridiculous zoom ins, the, you know, fast pace editing, the, you know, the, the title cards and things like that. Like it's, it, all of that's there, but sometimes the execution felt lackluster to me. Um, and it was not in those things. The, the train, to be clear, the, while I had narrative problems with the train breakout, like visually and stylistically, that scene's great with the split screen and the using the like wall for the, like that scene was great. That one moment, I was one of my favorite moments is uh, when Idris Elba steps out of this, this locked cage, this steel cage that he's been kept in. Uh, and he takes a deep breath and the camera warps. <laughs> like it does the matrix warp yeah i, I saw that yeah it to, so much fun. to me it was that scene in the in the fight between trudy and mary felt like different like i don't know th- those felt more well done than, like any of the other action in any of the other action in the movie to me yeah actually, and I mean, the, actually i was actually not too big a fan of but that comes from like me just loving fight scenes oh. uh, i think that it's one of those things where like it's well choreographed uh it's just cut a little too much you know they're trying to hide the fact that they're using stunt doubles and such um, yeah. and uh like but like you know it's a well designed action sequence and but like you know compared to like all the shootouts we're like oh man i love fi- side note i'm sorry the uh, i of course uh man what happened on that film set was a tragedy but fuck i'm gonna miss seeing like guns on sets son i'm gonna miss seeing guns in movies i swear to god like i'm looking at the i was looking at like all the the smoke going in the air and the the you know rounds going up and some of it is cg but like some of it isn't and like man i'm like damn i'm gonna miss this i watched what this scott atkin movies one shot like a couple days ago and um it's all cg guns it's all like airsoft guns and i'm like fuck this is gonna this is so sad man. anyway i'm sorry that was a quick surge you know we could talk about that later sorry you like you like john wick though and that's not that's all cg all cg that, right. that's all CG. But, yeah yeah anyways so you know and i i would agree with daniel though that the the shootout for me the uh the final shootout i thought was really well done but then the scene that i kept coming back to in my mind and there were several scenes like this was after the shootout when we have to go back to the narrative and we have to, you know, the filmmakers have to, you know, finish the story mm-hmm. uh, and we get, I, I guess we're moving into spoiler territory now. So if you want to drop your little note about this. Yeah. People die in this movie. If you don't want to know who they are, go away. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jonathan Majors, Nat Love, uh, we'll find, you know, after everybody else is dead and it only, it's only Idris Elba left, you know, Jonathan Majors goes into the, the building and confronts Rufus Buck, confronts Idris Elba, and Idris uh, finally reveals the you know the plot twist of him being Nat Love's brother, him being Jonathan Major's character's brother. I was so distracted by the way that scene was shot. There was, it seemed like there was no mind whatsoever paid to shot selection. There was the the entire time that Idris Elba is giving his his like his narrative his story where he's kind of before he gives the reveal where he's saying like they're you know he's giving this really emotional story of his childhood and his father his absentee alcoholic you know abusive father and the shot that they go for in that moment is like a medium shot where we're like 10 feet away from Idris Elba his back is turned to the camera and it's framed like a 
like like the fucking king's speech where he's like all the way on right side of frame and there's a ton of negative space in the frame where there's nothing going on and i'm like what am i what am i looking at here like i'm just looking at idris elba's back while he gives this emotional speech and there was a lot of moments like that yeah I'm actually, i should just put it up my computer now to look at it as he talked and it, it is a little funny the way they decided to do that <laughs> I think that's and, one of those things. I feel like, and I, you know, I don't know how this goes like behind the scenes. I think Elijah can illuminate this more. That, especially that particular shot, like the like you know, me and shot with like weird a lot of negative space. That seems to be something that a lot of like uh, a lot of like streaming content, a lot of like you know Netflix stuff seems to go for. And I don't know why it is. The first time I really noticed it was um, what was it called? It wasn't a Netflix thing. It was uh, 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 the the thing that uh, made the the guy, the worst best actor, not winner in like a couple of years. What's his name? <laughs> what? He won because of the T. Uh, he's the villain. Rami Malek. Rami Malek, yeah. Oh, you're Rami talking about Mr. Robot. Okay, Mr. Robot. I see where you're going with this. Time. Yeah, Mr. Robot was like the first time I noticed it where like they would shoot these dialogue scenes and it'd just be like their face in the corner of the screen and I'd be like, this adds nothing. Uh, like in this moment, like it made sense in the King's speech. What are you doing here? It seems like it's one of those... those it's becoming like the style to shoot just dialogue and like it just yeah i'm with you in that sense i'm looking i'm listening to him talk and i'm like why are we why do we not see his face this seems like something we want to see him or you'd want to frame it in a way to like really enhance the emotion of what he's talking about and i i think there were there were several things like that or just general visual touches that took me right out of it because they weren't uh you know things that i think i would expect to see in a spaghetti western there mm. were several tracking shots done um with steady cams or frankly i don't think they were done with steady cams i think they were maybe done with glide cams because they were really they were a little bit shaky and i was like it just it's it's like so you're saying that when they like, did when they didn't go for like their influences, they kind of settled on this kind of style that just didn't suit the movie, the story they were telling. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it, if I, it's a style that I see very frequently with first time directors. And so my hope is that maybe James Samuel, if he tries it again, you know, he'll, maybe he'll get it right on the second pass. You know, I, I watched the short film that Harder They Fall is kind of an ex- expansion of. Um, and it that one had similar problems uh and it came out eight years ago it's called they die by dawn by the way that one also has like a quite stacked cast i'm very very yeah michael k williams is not loving that one Joaquin woodbind yeah erica badu rosario dawson i think right yeah it's yeah man this guy has got connections (laughs) yeah and you know i felt like there were some of those problems there too I just wish it, you know, I wish that it, he can, he can work some of them out and feel comfortable doing things that aren't people getting shot (laughs) because that's, I, that's where I think the movie just needed to be stronger was the moments in between. And, and, and for me, I felt like the dialogue in some, in, in some of those cases, what ended up happening was the dialogue got really let down. The dialogue and the performances got really let down by the direction Cause there were just moments where I was like, no, no, go, go back to the other. Sh- like, I don't need to see whatever it is you're showing me or like, but there, there were moments where, and especially, especially towards the beginning when it was, when the film was going through all of its motions of like the spaghetti Western stage setting, 
where I was like, oh, this is great. Like the first sequence with RJ Seiler and um, uh, Eddie Gathegi. Like when, uh, they're, when they're in like the hills or something. And yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's this great shot where it's like from the perspective of the guy on the ground and they're just standing there like arguing with each other. And I was like, see, like, this is great. Mm-hmm. But it's it's those, it's it's when the movie moves into uncharted territory where James Samuel would have to kind of improvise and do things himself that it just didn't, it, I don't think it, the directorial vision was there. So. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think that is fair. I think that is a fair assessment. For me, it's just that like the moments where it does all come together kind of overruled those. Oh, I'm sorry. We didn't, my favorite, I think my single favorite sequence might have been, uh, there's a, at one point in the movie, I mean, look, I like the characters, I like the performances and such. Uh, the plot's just an excuse. At one point, they have to go off and rob like a bank in a white town. God, that scene was hilarious. <laughs> that would that that might be that might be my favorite part of the movie too. I, I love it, even like on a just a visual level. Like they go into this white town, everything is stark white. Everything is stark white. Just, think, just and, they, and they put word on the screen that said this is a very white place or something like to that effect. <laughs> yeah, a white place, a white city or something like that. Um, it, it made me it made me think of honestly. Um, it made me think of uh, was it branded to kill? No, Tokyo Drifter. It made me think of like Suzuki. It's just so much fun. Uh, it's the kind of thing where like they're trying to he's diving into his influences in a way that of course like you know you kind of see where he's pulling from but i i can't think of anything today that uh i can compare this to and that's what kind of makes the difference for me i think another thing for me another thing that kind of made me sad was from that moment on after that sequence in the white town the bank robbery there's like no more humor Mm -hmm. in the film the film just becomes incredibly unfunny until the end of the movie. <laughs> and that's fair. Well, when, 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 I mean, I guess the one thing that is a little funny, I suppose, is when, um, when RJ Siler finally gets to shoot out with Lakeith Stanfield and he's but just it's, like, it's too like cocky. kind of sad. Like, it, yeah, it's I mean, a little it's sad, funny, but, but it's, it's like, yeah. Oh, what a slime ball. I'm sorry. Can we talk a little bit about the performances, man? Yeah, yeah. Dude, RJ Siler was phenomenal. He might, I think he was my favorite performance in the movie. Yeah, I was really happy for him because like he really hadn't done much in the last four years. Like I remember like seeing him for the first time in me and Earl and the Dying Girl, which is like a good fine movie, and he's fine, he's good in it. And then it's like then he shows up as the blue Power Ranger in the Power Rangers movie, and then just had not really like done anything all that visible, and then like get, gets to come out here and just like chew all the scenery in like a way that I hadn't seen him do it before. And it was it was really fun. Yeah, yeah, no, he was a lot of fun. Um, by the way, you find this happens a lot. Whenever you're like, damn, I haven't seen this actor in a while. This dude has been like, he's been on a recurring role in Black Lightning. He did like a TV show for a year, um, like a main role. He he did like a couple of, he did a stint on the Scream TV show. Like, you okay, always- so RJ Sauer has done stuff, just stuff I haven't watched, I guess. Exactly. Oh, he's a recurring role on Swap Thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> like- but like, he has a recurring know, thing on Swamp Thing, which has been canceled. So to be fair, it's not exactly <laughs> true. true. But hey, come on, come on. It, like COVID, COVID, like, you know. Um, by the way, speaking of COVID, apparently uh, they originally, Cynthia Erebo was in this, Wesley Snipes was in this, and Sterling K. Brown were in this. They just had to leave because of the delays because of the pandemic. I wonder it was, who was, who was, was, was Sterling K. Brown going to be Rufus? I wonder what he would have been. I have no idea. I mean, I, I could have seen him as Rufus. Yeah, he could have done that, but um, yeah, but um, but I mean, I thought Idris was really good. Idris, like, 
look, I, I love the guy a lot of the times, but he's like in so much stuff that I feel like I almost get like, it's like hard for him to find like new shades to play sometimes. Cause he's like, he's been a villain in a lot of things. He's been in a lot of like stuff over and over again. He's already been in like one, like, uh, well, not a cowboy movie. It is in that concrete cowboy movie earlier this year that like I was originally going to get. He was in dark tower. He played the gunslinger. He plays the gunslinger. Yeah. Yeah. He it's just, he's been in so much stuff that like, and some of it I haven't even seen. So I was just like, Whenever he shows up, I'm a little wary. It's like, all right, Idris, are you going to show me something new fun again? And he, I, I, I enjoyed him, even if like, I'm not, I can't disagree. They didn't push the character enough to like develop him. I, I thought he was like, I thought, I thought he did what he was asked to do as well as he could have. They just could have done more with that guy, you know. I mean, oh, I'm sorry, Lakeith, I love Lakeith, I love slime ball ass motherfucker. Like I was, when he shot RJ, I'm like, man, what the fuck? I need to see this nigga die. <laughs> so I was invested in seeing this man suffer. Dion Cole is great. I love seeing that Dion Cole is like, he, he did a straight role here. Like Dion Cole, I know from like, you know, Conan O'Brien. Um, and so like, you know, there he's just, you know, he's playing comedic, but like, he's just always a scary dude uh, in blackish. He's, he's hilarious in blackish and it's like such a goofy role. And so it's funny when he's like, I'm going to be in the heart of they fall and do something kind of serious. It's straight serious. He's doing nothing different than in his comedic roles and it works. Uh, you know, Jonathan majors. I love really, I've grown, I've grown to really like him and enjoy when I see him. I was watching the shit. I was watching the torture scene. I'm like, damn, I need to, I need to just go back to working out. It's been a minute. <laughs> and of course, Did you watch Lovecraft Country? That was also something that would have done had the same effect. Okay, um, I, need to, I need to get on that. It's like, course, that whole show is like an ode to his arms, really. Okay, brilliant. And <laughs> the motivation. And yeah, of course, Regina King is just phenomenal in this. Like, I really, really loved her. Uh, every moment she's on screen, uh, she's the one commanding all my attention. And if I remember correctly, there's like a sequel hook at the end of the movie with her Hummer. yeah they, they do a little sequel baiting with her and i would i am down for that i'm down for that i was i was really taken with danielle deadweiler i know when, <laughs> when the three of us talked about this movie before i was like oh can't turn down zazie bates and regina king but i was i was i i had never seen daniel danielle deadweiler in anything he played um, coffee uh, uh, yeah, she plays she plays Cuffy um, in in this uh, who is a character that's based on Cathay Williams, who's uh, uh, a woman who uh, dressed as a man to enlist in the United States Army uh, in the 1850s or 60s, and that's basically the the idea behind the role that she plays is like a a character that. Uh, you know, kind of hides her gender identity in order to fit in. I guess I know she was in an episode of Atlanta, I think, and she was in Watchmen. So I've seen her in a couple places before, but I just, I thought she was really magnetic. Like she's a very, she's very like emotive and expressive. And obviously the rob, like the robbery scene in uh, the white city, the white town. Like, she has to do a lot of different, hit a lot of different notes just within that one scene. It's pretty cool. Right, exactly. Yeah, so. she, pulls, yeah she she really does like, sell all that shit. Like, she's great. Is the character trans? Like, I couldn't tell that. I couldn't figure out if the character was just a cross-dresser. Like, like she's she's a cross-dresser, right? It's a, it's a phrase I don't really love using, but yeah, it, that would be the mm-hmm. accurate way to describe her. She does not identify as a man. She just dresses as a man. Yeah. yeah, in order to. Presents as one and doesn't correct people's assumptions. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
<laughs> Elijah, what, what did you, I mean, uh, Daniel said he liked Jonathan Majors. How, what did you think about him in this movie? Because, I mean, a lot of it really does uh, rest on him. And we, it was funny, we talked about the casting of Last Night in Soho and how Edgar Wright got those girls kind of like right before they blew up. And if you look at when this movie went into production, mm-hmm. it was like a month after Last Black Man in San Francisco came out. So, yeah. I mean, everyone really liked him in that movie, but it's just like such a different role. So, I mean, I thought it's a pretty, uh, a, a pretty cool leap of faith again from a different director and James Daniels to be like, hey, I, I think this guy could like carry this relatively big Western as like a, just like the, the main big outsized outlaw. Yeah, I, I thought it was a really ambitious choice, actually, because to me, when I think of Jonathan Majors, I think in my mind, I honestly compare him a bit to Joaquin Phoenix. Um, in terms of his physicality, in terms of kind of his like oral posturing and the way he delivers lines and the way he handles emotion. He's somebody who I expect really phenomenal things from uh, in the future. And I I thought he did a great job in this movie. I thought, you know, he he bears like all of the narrative emotional weight (laughs) throughout the entire movie. And he does a really, really good job of it, especially towards the end. He sells that. The the twist, by the way, like uh, the twist... I was not a fan of myself. I don't think it adds very much to the movie, but fuck, he sells it. Yeah, totally, totally sells it. Um, I, I like him a lot. I, I'm not like I. I think it's pretty clear. I'm not going to walk away from this being like this is his best role of all time. But I expect that we will see a lot more of him. I mean, obviously, people who watch Marvel, I don't know if can we, is because this gonna be the episode where we just we spoil Last Night in Soho and The Heart of They Fall and Repulsion and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> I mean, it's been like three months since Loki concluded. We can do, and and people already know like who who he got cast as. And but I mean, I didn't. I I don't know enough about Marvel comics to like until Loki had come out to like fully understand what that character is going to be and how it's how how much it's going to ask of him. And I mean, it was really cool when he got that introduction. It's like wow, like he really does have that kind of range to do that kind of villain, be the kind of hero he was here, and be the kind of quiet person he was in Last Black Man in San Francisco. He can really do a lot. Yeah, exactly. And that was that was my my what I was going to say, basically, is just, you know, I expect we will see a lot more of him in movies over the next several years. And I'm, I'm glad. very happy for that. I'm glad. Yeah. yeah. Dan- Daniel, Daniel touched on Lakeith a little bit, who's I mean, he he's always been a bit of a personal favorite of mine, but it was just like it's always cool to see him find like new shades like this guy was like it's clearly some kind of like like he's kind of slimy, like Daniel said, but he's also, you know, uh, fairly eloquent. And it's really fun watching him like uh, uh, navigate the navigate that situation on the train, or uh, a couple a couple of other moments here or there. Like he's 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 not all bravado, but he's clearly extremely confident. And I just thought that was a it was a unique character for him to play too. And he's done a lot of different things. I would say that's a character that's like it seems like ripped straight out of some sort of spaghetti western. Look, I'm not gonna oh, lie, man, yeah, I've seen so many of them. I couldn't name you a single one. Once you get to like, I'm not gonna lie. Once you get to when it comes to the giallo and like spaghetti westerns and such, if you don't like say it in your review when you log this movie, you're gonna forget what movie had what. But the uh, the, the the yeah, you're right. The sliminess mixed with like the pragmatic like. I don't feel like killing you because it's not practical. It doesn't gain me anything to do it. That easygoing nature with that sliminess, like it, it, it's oozing that influence. And I, I, it was just, I love that role. Yeah. I, I also want to shout out Delroy Rendo quickly. I, I, I mean, he was good in it, but like there was one moment where like during the final gunfight where like, there's like 
I, I don't remember what the song was that was playing because I don't really know much about songs, but it was, I mean, the songs were fun. They had a lot of different artists I know drop in for a song here, a song there. And there's one where like a beat drops and all of a sudden you see him like sauntering across the, across the town and uh, just start like letting his gun fire. And like, I got, I, I got super jazzed almost more so than any other part in the movie than I was when like watching Delroy Window start like firing off as a beat drops in one of these hip hop songs it's playing. And I got super into it. So I, I it, it was really cool to like that they were able to drop him in this movie. And he just seemed like he fit with everyone, even if he was a, a, honestly like, you know, 20 years older than just about everyone else in it. Like I, I, I thought it was like really, really fun. And I'm glad that he got to be in this too. Yeah. The, the, Del, the Delroy Sans is real and I'm really happy about it that people are remembering that he's great. I, w- w- it, within like the 24 hours of watching this movie, um Haley and I randomly watched Get Shorty and I was like god there was a time when people put respect on Delroy Lindo's name and I'm glad that we're going back there like <laughs> Get Shorty is a movie that I've heard of and I know I um, I don't know I can't picture what it is it's 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 to, it's a crime comedy with Travolta it's it's fun like it's not the greatest film ever made it's it's a little bit over long that's not the movie we're talking about though but Delroy Lindo is in it and it's from his like like Crooklyn and Clockers and okay. like that from that era okay uh, cool. I, I will say I'm sorry we, we when you mentioned the music I forgot to talk about the music fucking love it it's a great set music was phenomenal I saw this movie on a date which was actually very it was a very depressing date and uh at one point, like, you know, a Lord, I hear Lauren Hill and I lean over and I'm like, yo, that's fucking Lauren Hill. And this girl like rolled her eyes and was like, I think I would know if that was Lauren Hill. It was fucking Lauren Hill. <laughs> it got Lauren Hill on this track. Of course, a new song produced by Jake. You know, yeah, it's a new song. It's a new song. Which, you know, Lauren Hill, I don't think she's out there like doing too much, but like, yeah, they got Lauren Hill on this shit. They got fucking Conway. They got Conway the Machine on one of these tracks. I fucking... Yo, they got, when you get Griselda, when you get Griselda on your movie, like, you know I got to give you props. You know I got to give you props. So, yeah, hands down, like, you know, one of the best soundtracks of the year. All right, well, uh, any final thoughts, Elijah? I know it seems that you obviously had your criticisms with the filmmaking, but it seems like you still found enough to, like, you know, have it be an, an enjoyable enough watch. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody is going to walk away from this film bored. And that's, yeah. you know, that's kind of the the baseline that I think people can hope for. So, you know, yeah, I think um, I think it's a it's a movie. I said it was like it, it was like I think in my review, I said it was like lovably frustrating. And that's kind of where I stand with it. It's like I I want to see more like I want I want to see James Samuel pick it up and like and and you know like see what he can do obviously the rest of the, the cast does not need to be a proven commodity like i just they they are already they're already all great i you know i'm just glad they're getting recognition in anything and this is you know a fun movie for them to get it from so daniel any other final thoughts on the harder they fall so it's a fun fucking time it's a fun ass time uh i want you all to go watch this movie and Marissa, if you're listening to this, I was fucking right. It was Lauren Hill. Hill. <laughs> fuck out of here. <laughs> it's safe to say you uh, wasn't the best date, I guess. Oh, um, no. You know, <laughs> I, I asked her to try my food. We went to like a Tex-Mex place at like uh, a City Walk. 
And she got like three chicken tacos. I looked at her like, are you serious? Three chicken tacos. That's what you get. All right, fine. I got like some dish that I never heard of before. I asked her to try it. She straight up says, no, I don't like trying new food. What kind of fucking, do they make people like that? I didn't realize. I had to beg this girl to try this food. And she tried it. I was like, yeah, it's fine. I'm like, yeah, of course it's fucking fine. They're not throwing you curveballs at the Tex-Mex place in fucking City Walk. Like you're not going to eat it and be like, what? They put mice in this? No, no, they didn't. It's fucking chicken and cheese and shit, you dumbass. All right, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really hope that uh, uh, we, like, one of us doesn't have like a mutual friend with her and she doesn't come across this podcast. Um, uh, you know what? I hope she does. You're boring. Okay. Okay. Uh, I definitely uh, watch this movie, people. It's a lot of fun. Uh, you know, it's like a really crowded movie season. I'm drowning in um, garage band editing right now, but like, this is worth your time. Uh, it's, it, it, it's just like, you're you're not like elijah said you can like have your criticisms and you're not gonna you're still not gonna be bored though uh definitely worth it just a ton of fun performances i i'm not even necessarily one for gunfights uh all that often like i don't know i can take or leave them sometimes and i even found like myself having some fun with a lot of these beyond uh the couple scenes i mentioned so i will say, I will say uh the uh the action is actually for me like uh I, I, it passes the mark. I think that a lot of gun gunfights in movies, like it, it's an, there's an art to it that is, I think, even harder to do than like a fist fight because so much of it can boil down to like shot reverse shot. Um, and uh, this movie, I think, does do a great job in choreo- choreographing and uh, designing the gunfights. Yeah, and, and they do make it do enough good enough job of making like care about these characters that like you like are invested, Joe. Yeah. Yeah, that's something like the final standoff between Cherokee Bill and Cuffy. Like that means something, you know, even if it's just it's just a one shot here and one shot there and not even shot in such a wide way that you're really taking in exactly what their actions are. Like the, the looks on their face like mean something because you've spent enough time with these characters that uh, the action pays off, even if in isolated moments, it might not be the highest level of execution, though. If Daniel, if it's good enough for Daniel, it's probably going to be good enough for most of you. Before we sign off, Daniel, uh, you already name checked a bunch of like classic movies uh, that this comes from. But is there anything else you want to plug before you go? Uh, well, I, I got a little bit of a list for this and Soho. So Elijah, 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 Elijah starts a new job in the morning. So let's try and keep it, keep it short. Keep it brief. Come on. Okay. I will keep it brief for, uh, you know, I've mentioned a lot for last night in Soho, but I just want to, you know, reiterate that repulsion is just the better version of it. I, I understand if you don't want to see it because it's Polanski, I get it, but also it's unfortunately it's amazing. And uh, patch it for the honeymoon and your vice is a locked room and only I have a key for the giallo influence uh, and for the harder they fall. Um, I would say, honestly, like take a hard ride, which was the star studded Italian spaghetti Western with the black flotation mix uh, boss nigga, the legend of nigga, Charlie hundred rifles, which was a Jim Brown movie where he actually has a sex. It's like 1969 and he has a sex scene with Raquel Welch. That's bold. You know what I mean? Uh, there's a lot of actually pretty solid black Westerns that explore the role of black people in the West. Um, and, you know, they're all pretty fun to dive through. So. All right. Elijah, anything else you want to plug before we go? You're, you're not, you're not necessarily a Turner man anymore. So you might have to start like plugging some other stuff besides Warner properties. Well, the, the hilarious thing is right. Is so like my new, my new company is company three. I'm working as a colorist there. Uh, and the funny thing is, is like I was working on promo side of certain things at Warner Media that now I'll be working on content side of because like, for example, Raised by Wolves, which I uh, did promo work for the 
colorist is Stephen Nakamura, who is a Company Three colorist. So the show the show color was done by Company Three. Uh, so I might end up pro- plugging some of the same things, um, which is ironic, but that's down the line. Uh, in the meantime, uh, in a in a hard opposite direction from <laughs> from harder they fall. Uh, what I, what I ended up kind of going back to afterwards was the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford mm. by Andrew Dominic uh, with Brad Pitt and Casey Affleck and Sam Rockwell. Um, it's a film that people kind of forget exists because it's a Western that came out in the same year as no country for old men. And there will be blood and 310 to Yuma. So a uh, very stacked year for Westerns. People don't tend to remember this one, but it's an interesting film. I don't, I don't know that it really, it's fair to compare it in any way to harder they fall, but they're both interesting because they are revisionist films that kind of have a different, that they're both revisionist Westerns, but they have a very different take on the West um, and the people who were there or not were there, but the people, the kinds of, of narratives and emotional beats that we expect from Westerns, shall I say. And so that would be my recommendation because I always, I always end up finding people who have never seen that movie before. And I think it deserves to be seen more. So anything for Soho, my bad. I had to ask. Uh, not really. I mean, I think we've touched on a bajillion yeah. different. My, I still need to see. I will say, uh, Josh, you mentioned, you know, you just kind of want like a straightforward horror, uh, like fashion film. I have not seen it yet, but In Fabric came out a few years ago. Um, oh, yeah. Which is a, a giallo film by Peter Strickland, who did one of my favorite films from the last decade called The Duke of Burgundy. His films are like these really textured, giallo films and he did one that was a, about a haunted dress yeah <laughs> um yeah, i've been meaning to see that uh, i've heard it's like all right i mean some some people that i've talked to have had a very low opinion of it this like one of the i think this is one of the rare instances where we've mentioned him before and people who listen to this podcast know ben lubin uh this is this is like the kind of film that he was like i thought he was going to really like and he ended up not liking it Whereas David Ehrlich, the prominent critic for IndieWire, who I never trust his opinions because he doesn't like anything, <laughs> actually ended up liking it. So I don't really know what to expect with this movie. Uh, it's available on Canopy and on Vudu. So if you have a library card or don't mind using one of those free with ad streaming services, yeah. uh, it is a it is a fashion horror film. Uh, so I'll have to check it out. I can't recommend it necessarily, but I know that it it would probably fit the bill. So blood and black lace, giallo, <sighs> fashion house. I'm good. I'm good. Okay. Okay. Uh, speaking again of Ben, uh, when he was on just for the uh, podcast I did with Fred on Dune, I, I plugged the the at some point in the future I'm doing this uh, podcast with him on Bergman Island, which I'm still yet to watch, but I'm keep plugging all the movies he got me to watch in advance of it. I asked him to make a recommendation for another Mia Hansen love movie since the only one I'd seen was Things to Come. He recommended Eden, which I actually really enjoyed. 
the, the only really op- real option I had to watch with it was on Vudu with ads because I tried to watch it on Amazon and had to cancel my uh, purchase because the only version on Amazon that they would let you watch was a dub version because that was like really frustrating for some reason. So I, I had, I, yeah, I had to do it on Vudu with ads, but it's like, I mean, for me, someone that doesn't really know shit about music, he knows, knows even less about EDM or, you know, disco, whatever kind of disco music they're getting at in that movie um, with all the, the DJs that it follows. It's, uh, I still really enjoyed it and it was really cool how, um, she, she utilized time in a different way than even someone like I'd say like Richard Linklater did in Boyhood, even though it, fo- it takes place over a similar length of time. It's kind of cool watching these people traverse the music industry and deal with the relationships with one another over the time as they try and make it in make it in the arts. Uh, and it's 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 a really interesting movie. And like and try not to get too, too discombobulated when Greta Gerwig shows up because that really threw me off in that movie. Uh, as usual, I'm Josh Chernovoy on Twitter and Letterboxd, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y. Uh, podcast Twitter is at RewindMoviePod. Podcast email is RewindMoviePod at gmail.com. Daniel is on Letterboxd at Felonious Funk, and I believe Elijah is at Elijah Howard. Uh, thanks to Daniel and Elijah for joining me. Uh, coming up next on the podcast, um, might have a podcast on Pablo Rain Spencer with my friend Kayla. Uh, not really sure. Again, I have a bunch of stuff in the can, so we'll have something after this, but, uh, thanks to everyone for listening and we'll see you next time.